It's Friday, May 8th. I'm Oscar Ramirez in Los Angeles, and this is The Daily Dive. You might have seen headlines about a now-dominant strain of the coronavirus spreading that is more contagious than the original. According to researchers, a mutation occurred in the virus as it began spreading in Europe in early February, and it rapidly became the dominant form. This news comes from a research paper from scientists at Los Alamos National Laboratory and has not been peer-reviewed. There is some skepticism that any mutations have changed the general contagiousness or lethality of COVID-19. Sarah Kaplan, reporter at The Washington Post, joins us for what we know. Next, a crazy story about how an ex-Green Beret led a failed attempt to oust Venezuela's President Nicolas Maduro. The original plan was to have some 300 armed volunteers sneak into Venezuela, raid military bases, and capture Maduro. That plan never happened, and it seems like everything went wrong. Jordan Goudreau, owner of Silvercore USA, reportedly hashed the plan with Venezuelan opposition officials. There is still much to be known, but there is no indication that any U.S. officials sponsored Goudreau's actions. Karen DeYoung, senior national security correspondent at The Washington Post, joins us for how this whole plot fell apart. It's news without the noise. Let's dive in. We hear mutation and we think X-Men or some kind of like crazy lab experiment, but mutations are very common. Viruses, the way they work is they break into our cells and they use our cellular machinery to make copies of themselves and they're sloppy at it. And so a lot of mistakes get introduced. Joining us now is Sarah Kaplan, reporter at the Washington Post. Thanks for joining us, Sarah. Good to be here. It was a pretty scary headline earlier this week. Scientists say a now dominant strain of the coronavirus could be more contagious than the original. Right away, people started getting very scared about this. Talks of the coronavirus mutating, being a much more contagious strain, and nobody knew really what was going on. Right away, there was a lot of experts that were skeptical of what was going on. But this all came from a research paper from scientists at Los Alamos National Laboratory. Sarah, tell us a little bit what we know about this. This paper is actually what's called a preprint. So it's research that has not yet been published by a scientific journal. And usually when scientific papers are published in a journal, they undergo a review process where other scientists read through the paper, make sure the conclusions are valid and provide feedback. And so the idea is that that is a way to make sure that the results are robust. But in this era of science really happening at warp speed and researchers wanting to get information out there as quickly as possible, scientists have been posting their research to these preprint servers where they're available online even before they've been published in a journal. And that's what this paper was. And basically what it found is that the strain of the virus that is now the most common, that is the most abundant around the world, has a mutation in a gene that influences one of the proteins on the surface. And their idea is that somehow that has made that strain more transmissible and more contagious. And they're saying that this particular strain was something that came out of Europe, not in Wuhan, China, where they say that the SARS-CoV-2, the thing that causes COVID-19, where it really originated. So this strain is coming out of Europe. The thing to remember is that all viruses mutate. We hear mutation and we think X-Men or some kind of like crazy lab experiment, but mutations are very common. Viruses, the way they work is they break into our cells and they use our cellular machinery to make copies of themselves and they're sloppy at it. And so a lot of mistakes get introduced. 
This virus has about 30,000 base pairs in its genome. So you can think of that as a book that's 30,000 words long. You change one word in the book and it probably won't change the book very much. And so all of these strains that we talk about that have been circulating, they carry kind of different genetic fingerprints, markers. They've picked up mutations and now you can recognize that as distinct lineages. That doesn't necessarily mean that they're functionally different. And in fact, the consensus from scientists so far is that all of these strains are actually functionally the same. We're all getting the same version of the coronavirus. They just have some slight changes to them. So this strain, the the one that has been described with the mutation on the gene that codes for its spike protein, that is one that emerged in Europe. And it has become very abundant around the world, the dominant strain that's circulating in the U.S. as well. And this hypothesis that the reason that it is so abundant is because it's more contagious, that's one interpretation. But a lot of the critics of this paper have said there are other explanations beyond mutation that increases contagiousness. You think about this virus being introduced to northern Italy way back in January It was a very vulnerable population and a society that was largely unprepared to contain the threat. And so they say, you know, it's the founder effect. The reason this virus is so abundant is because it got to a soft target and then spread a lot. And so now we're seeing that everywhere. The idea is that maybe what is distinctive about this strain of the virus is not the virus's DNA, but it's us. It's the fact that it got to... Europe and then North America, and we proved to be very easy targets. The same could be said for us here in the United States, obviously. There was reports a little bit ago that the strain that was going around in New York City, who has obviously been so hard hit for us in the United States, that that strain was a mutated strain that came from Europe also. But obviously, again, you know, a population unprepared for it, it's going to spread like wildfire, and that's kind of exactly what happened. So they're saying that This new strain, possibly more contagious, but probably not any more lethal. In fact, once these things kind of keep mutating and passing on to more and more people, a lot of times with viruses, it loses its effectiveness. The idea is that it's not in a virus's best interest to kill its host. A virus that is extremely lethal isn't able to spread very far because from the virus's perspective, you want your host to be up and moving around and infecting other people. And so some of the most successful viruses from a kind of biological perspective are ones that don't actually cause that much disruption to a person. An example is the herpes virus, which has been with the human lineage for 6 million years. So when we were closer to our great ape cousins than we are to modern humans today, we had herpes virus. And, you know, it's not deadly. And so it stayed with us a really long time. The evolutionary pressure on viruses is to become more contagious and less virulent. And that is a hope. You know, it's a long-term hope that one day this virus may become less virulent. But the other thing to keep in mind is that this virus actually mutates more slowly than other viruses do. Most viruses are not able to fix mistakes in their genetic material when they make copies of themselves. And this virus is able to fix some mistakes. So that means it picks up mutations about one-tenth as frequently as something like the influenza virus. So researchers don't expect this virus to mutate in a way that produces functional changes, changes in the way it affects us or the way it infects us. They're not expecting that to happen rapidly. If anything, it'll be a matter of many more months or years. Yeah, this virus has remained relatively stable. So I wanted to bring you on to talk a little bit about it. Obviously, we still don't know 
that much about the novel coronavirus. We're learning as we go. We're still waiting for more effective treatments. We're still waiting for a vaccine to hopefully eventually come through. And you hear a headline like that, you know, it gets pretty scary right away. You think it's changing. And as it is, people are already talking about second waves and things like that. So I wanted to talk a little bit about to just so everybody can know that this might be a second strain that mutated in Europe, but it's not anything necessarily that we need to worry about right now. It's not that we don't need to be worried, but it's just that our response is the same. The recommendations that we've been getting from public health officials and epidemiologists and scientists are still true. We should be physically distancing. We should be wearing masks. We should be washing our hands. I mean, I understand kind of the thirst for information about this virus. There's so many uncertainties and that's very hard to live with because we want to know like, what is the right thing to do? What is the best way to stay safe? But I think that this is really forcing us all sort of undergo a little bit of a scientific literacy crash course. And it's just a reminder to be cautious when you read studies. Science is not single breakthroughs. It's the accumulation of research that all points to the same thing. And so this one study is not going to change the way we fight coronavirus. But as researchers look into these questions of, you know, what are these mutations and how do they affect the virus and how is it spreading? That's what's going to enable them to understand it and develop effective tools against it. You know, approach everything with interest, but maybe with caution and with context. Think about what is the broader picture of what the research is telling us and make sure it fits in with everything else. There's that Carl Sagan quote that extraordinary claims require extraordinary evidence. And so anything that seems a little too extraordinary is maybe something to take with a grain of salt. Sarah Kaplan, reporter at The Washington Post. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. He eventually made contact with representatives in Miami of the president of Venezuela that is recognized by the United States and many other countries in Latin America, Juan Guaido. Joining us now is Karen DeYoung, senior national security correspondent for The Washington Post. Thanks for joining us, Karen. You're welcome. I wanted to talk about this crazy story. It was earlier this week on Monday, President Nicolas Maduro of Venezuela said that two United States citizens were among 13 terrorists, as he called them, that were captured by the authorities there in connections with what they said was a failed plot to invade the country and topple his government. We're starting to hear a little bit more about this story and how this plan was kind of hatched by a former Green Beret who lives in Florida. And it's just a crazy story. They were supposed to have some 300 heavily armed volunteers that would sneak into Venezuela. They would raid military bases, do all sorts of stuff, and basically take in Nicolas Maduro so they can topple him there. As I mentioned, just a crazy story. But Karen, tell us a little bit about how this plan got started and how it all fell apart. I think it's important to say there's a lot we still don't know, and there are a whole lot of conflicting accounts. As best we can tell to this point, this is a guy named Jordan Goudreau, who is a, a former Green Beret, who in 2018 formed a what he called a strategic security company based in Florida. He eventually made contact with representatives in Miami of the president of Venezuela that is recognized by the United States and many other countries in Latin America, Juan Guaido, 
and said that he was prepared to launch an invasion training and uh, supervising defected Venezuelan military personnel who now live in Colombia. And initially they agreed to this plan and uh, the, the goal of it was they were going to kidnap Nicolas Maduro, who is the president of Venezuela, and they were going to put him on a plane and bring him to the United States. He was indicted earlier this year for narco-trafficking, and there's a $15 million bounty on his head. As I say, the opposition people initially agreed to this, gradually became sort of concerned, and by their account, by kind of mid-fall of last year, basically opted out of the whole thing. Apparently, Goudreau, the Green Beret, went ahead with organizing uh, what eventually ended up to be only about 60 former Colombian soldiers. He enlisted two other former U.S. Special Operations soldiers to go down there and train these guys. There was an apparent arms shipment to another exile guy who lived in Colombia that was intercepted. That guy was arrested. He had also been indicted for narco-trafficking, and he was sent to the United States where he's now in prison. This small group of Venezuelans apparently took off from northern Colombia in two boats on Sunday. An initial boat that landed was intercepted on the Venezuelan coast where most of the people in it were killed. A second boat, the one carrying the two Americans, arrived on Monday morning where they were met with Venezuelan security forces. They were arrested. President Maduro had a news conference yesterday, showed a video of one of them who said, yeah, this was the plan. This is how much I was paid. This is what I did. This is who was in charge. The Trump administration basically says it knows nothing about any of this. And that's kind of where we are right now. Yeah, I mean, it's so crazy. Even the Americans that were captured, they showed supposedly their passports. I guess they had their passports on them for some type of uh, secret military action. I don't know if you'd be carrying your passport for something like that. But there's varying degrees, as you mentioned, with what happened and who was on board with what part of the plan. But it did seem that things were moving. I mean, uh, as you mentioned, Goudreau had people there training some of these Venezuelans to do these operations. So there was this kind of plan in motion. There was, but I think that anyone who, as people have found out about it, you know, there was just no hope it was going to succeed. And in fact, there were lots of indications that Maduro and his people had known about this for some time. And clearly they were standing there on this rocky shore, not very far from the international airport outside of Caracas waiting for them when they pulled up. So it couldn't have been much of a secret. And I think with 60 guys who had gotten a couple months of training from two Americans, um, and we don't really know what kind of weaponry they had. The Venezuelan government has shown all kinds of what they say are captured weapons, but we don't have any way really of knowing that. I think the likelihood that this was going to accomplish much of anything is pretty slim. You know, nobody does these types of things without money being involved, usually. What do we know about that part of it? Because from reading your report, it seemed like Guaido and the opposition were exploring options on maybe how to topple Maduro there. And they seemed like they had toyed with this idea of 
using some type of military action. And they were asking people and, you know, some people were asking for as much as $500 million for a job. And it seemed that Jordan Goudreau settled on a much lower number. But was any money officially handed over, anything like that? Well, according to both Goudreau and the Venezuelan group, the opposition group in Miami, he was given $50,000 for expenses. But as I said, they fell out before any real money kind of changed hands. And the money that he was going to be paid with, he eventually expected to get something in excess of $200 million, supposedly, he says. And this was going to be from profits from the Venezuelan oil industry, which various oil companies were going to go down and take over and get contracts for after Maduro was overthrown and when a new government supposedly headed by Guaido, who now says he knows nothing about any of this, took over. And so it was kind of a contingency fee. But again, everybody who you would think had to have known about this is kind of running in the other direction, saying they knew nothing about it, including the Trump administration. And, you know, a group of senior Democratic senators late yesterday sent a letter to Secretary of State Pompeo, Attorney General Barr, and uh, Rich Grinnell, who's the acting director of national intelligence, asking a whole bunch of questions about what the administration knew about this. If they knew anything, did they take any steps to prevent it? Isn't this illegal, what Goudreau was doing under all kinds of U.S. and international law? What are they doing to investigate him? What's the intelligence assessment of whether the Guaido government in exile, recognized by the United States, knew about this? And as you say, who paid for it? I think there have been some reports that the Justice Department has launched an investigation of Goudreau. But again, it's all part of the murky circumstances surrounding this, which kind of sounds like a Keystone Cops operation. But again, it went on for long enough and actually resulted in an, in a number of deaths of these some of these guys who landed there, that it, it seems really hard to believe that no one in the U.S. government, which is very interested in what happens in Venezuela and very close to the opposition, had any idea that any of this was going on. And Jordan Goudreau has been pretty vocal about what was going on. I mean, he's spoken to a lot of people. I saw somewhere he said that he's fighting an information war about this. I mean, he's maintaining that he was talking to opposition members. He had clearance from Guaido. There might have been some type of U.S. military involvement or something. So he's been kind of saying a lot of this stuff. As often happens in situations like this, there are lots of actors. There are lots of sort of Rambo types. It's hard to know at this point what to believe about what what Goudreau is saying. So is Goudreau in custody somewhere in the United States? What is the status of him right now? He supposedly is in hiding. I believe he is in the United States. I don't know that for sure, but he's certainly talking on the phone and texting not only to us, but to other reporters, too. So I don't know who else he's talking to. And I don't know who's looking for him. What a crazy story. And as you mentioned at the beginning, a lot more that we still need to know about this, obviously with the sensitive nature of what's going on in Venezuela as well. I'm sure we're going to be hearing a lot more. Karen DeYoung, Senior National Security Correspondent at The Washington Post. Thank you very much for joining us. You're very welcome. That's it for this week. Join us on social media. 
Daily Dive Pod on both Twitter and Instagram. Leave us a comment, give us a rating, and tell us the stories that you're interested in. Follow us on iHeartRadio or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. This episode of The Daily Dive is produced by Victor Wright and engineered by Tony Sorrentino. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and this was your Daily Dive.